The College Game Day podcast is presented by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. We got a real simple plan. One me and one mission. Georgia has won the national championship. You're a fan, you might think this is sports heaven. This might be college football heaven. This is ESPN's College Game Day podcast. Now alongside Pete Thamel, is Reese Davis. Playoff statements were made. Others took a major hit in their quest to make the college football playoff. This is the College Game Day podcast for Monday, November 14th. Reese Davis and Pete Thamel here. Our custom is to record this podcast on Monday morning. And we will certainly spend a lot of time talking about what happened on the field uh, throughout the course of this podcast a little bit later on. But everything in college football and everything in sports, in fact, at the moment as we speak, is being overshadowed by the tragedy in Charlottesville on Sunday night, in which a former University of Virginia football player is the suspect of, of a shooting in which three people were killed, two others were wounded. The first to be confirmed killed is a current Virginia football player, and uh, the tragedy is unspeakable, the pain that they're feeling uh, in Charlottesville and across college football for uh, for the this senseless act of violence that you know we all have become way too accustomed to seeing and and, and Pete you know so much of this we we love to talk football and sometimes you fall into the trap of making these players X's and O's and their their families and they're critiqued and criticized for performance and and then something awful like this happens and. None of that matters, and all you can think about is the is the devastation being felt within that community and within the families of of those affected. Yeah, it's uh, obviously just a, an, an unspeakable tragedy. And again, as we are taping this on Monday morning, and again, I just want to reiterate that by the time some people listen to this, because obviously podcasts uh, don't come out in a in a aren't consumed in a linear way. Um, you know, there, there'll be there'll be a lot more details and, and we'll update uh, midweek when we can. Um, but, yeah, the, uh, the the former Virginia walk on uh, Chris Jones is is armed and dangerous and still on the loose right now. And, and I bring that up more to just have an empathy for the entire Virginia campus. I mean, you have an entire campus in lockdown right now. Um, you have a team that that's dealing with the with with the tragedy, the uh, the, the Charlottesville paper. Um the Daily Progress has reported that Deshaun Perry, a 22-year-old linebacker and defensive end, is one of the three people who was uh, who was shot at the Culberth Garage. Um, I mean, just it, it says here he made uh, two tackles against Pittsburgh on Saturday, and uh, now his family is uh, flying from Miami. And it just like just my heart just is is ripped out. Obviously, for his family, the families of everyone affected. Carl Williams, athletic director there. Tony Elliott, uh, the, the head coach there. Uh, just there's, uh, it's just an unspeakable, uh, an unspeakable tragedy that's that's you know still ongoing as we talk on 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 Monday. So just for the sense of uncertainty and uh, just fear, it, it's just really a uh, re- really a difficult time there. So our, our hearts and prayers go out to them. Uh, you know they. They're looking into the the background, obviously, and the reports are starting to, uh, you know, have been coming out over the last several days. And the the suspect, you know, was listed on the roster, didn't play, been a few years ago, and uh, 
I, I think that according to the article that I've started to read here, that he's still listed as a student at, mm-hmm. at the University of Virginia, at least according to this article. As you rightly said, more details are going to come out. And this is the type of, of thing in which leadership uh, within the team and within the athletics community and on the campus is vital. It can't be prepared for. Um, there's, you know, there's no way that you could expect uh, Tony Elliott or Carla Williams to know precisely what to do in this situation. But the one thing from knowing about both of them is that I think they will, you know, they will make really good judgments in terms of of being being the strength, being the backbone for uh, for the players and the athletes and the students at the University of Virginia who've had their sense of safety completely rocked and undermined. And, you know, it really speaks to the ongoing issues in our society with mental health and with evil and with all of the things that confront everyone, but seem to particularly be confronting young people and how they deal with uh, temptation and pressures in life and, and different things. And when they uh, act criminally or violently, as um, it is alleged that the former player uh, Chris Jones did. Um, whenever that happens, I mean, certainly in my judgment, that is worthy far more of of punishment than any empathy. But then, when you take a step back and look at society at large, you try to get at the root of what is motivating uh, people to behave violently and in such a a callous fashion toward toward other people and what you know what can be done about helping people um, helping people handle things in a more in a, in a more productive and certainly less violent and horrific way than than what's been manifested on so many places not only on campuses and in sports but um, across the way and certainly in the state of Virginia they are acutely and painfully aware of this with, you know, Virginia Tech had the, you know, the horrific uh, murders that happened several years ago. And that, that's something that has that is still part of the fabric and the culture in that campus right now. And you see memorials and tributes and remembrances anytime you go to Blacksburg. And there have been other issues away from the University of Virginia that have happened in Charlottesville over the last few years. And then and then this one is, um, you know, it, it, it just breaks your heart. It breaks your heart to see it. Yeah, uh, I, I don't have a, a ton more to add, Reese, other than just, you know, extreme empathy. Uh, they obviously play uh, Coastal Carolina on uh, on on Saturday. And uh, the, the the games just don't matter right now. There's really no other way to say it. You know, um, it, 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 what a what a difficult moment for that university. Uh, just to, I know class, classes obviously have been canceled today. There's a shelter in place that was put in last night. Um, just what a difficult difficult time uh, for uh, you know for for one of the great schools in America, right? One of the great public schools in America, just a, you know, a wonderful place filled with wonderful people. And uh, yeah, they're just really confronting, uh, confronting the, 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 just the most unthinkable tragedy this morning. Yeah. And our, we hope that the perpetrators, perpetrator or perpetrators are apprehended, stopped and sense of security and safety can be returned to everyone in town of Charlottesville and on campus or on uh, at the University of Virginia, and that 
and that, that sense of security, which everyone uh, should be entitled to in our country, is uh, is restored as best it can be and as quickly and efficiently as possible. Our, our thoughts and prayers going out to everyone who's been affected by this and and certainly that will be affected by it as as news continues to to come out about this tragedy at the University of Virginia. We'll be right back after this to talk about what happened this past week on the field in college football on the College Game Day podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Back on the College Game Day podcast, Reese Davis and Pete Thamel, and certainly uh, our excitement over talking about what occurred over the weekend has been tempered dramatically by the tragedy that has unfolded in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, as we mentioned at the top, we recorded this on Monday morning. More details will be coming from various other sources. But uh, in the meantime, uh, there you know, certainly a lot of things happened on the field over the weekend that have great implications. Pete, you and I were in Austin for the TCU-Texas game. And on Saturday night, that game did not unfold in any way, shape, form, or fashion, the way anyone suspected, I have one. I had one of our uh, uh, what what of our producers uh, mentioned to me after on Sunday afternoon. Did any of our guys mention that this could have been a defensive struggle? And I was like, no, because no one expected it, including Sonny Dykes and Steve Sarkeesian. Um, so, you know, I think the thing I came away with there were a couple of things. One. TCU really answered the bell in terms of being challenged. Seven and a half point underdog, people expecting the the patented Sonny Dykes fade that we've sort of joked about over the years where he, Sonny's had a lot of teams over the years. And maybe it was because he maximized them early. A lot of reasons for these types of things that have that have faded down the stretch. And many expected that it would start on Saturday night. Instead, TCU came out aggressively there. Their defensive front just whipped Texas's offensive front. You know, couldn't get Bijan Robinson going at all. And I thought that there was a there was a lot to like about the way TCU responded. That's the more important story because of the grand scope of what TCU is pursuing. I think a, another part of that is what does it mean for Texas, who most certainly did not answer the bell on Saturday night, and here they are with another minimum four loss season once again. And certainly, you know, they've had some tough games, tough breaks that they came up short, but they came up short again. So let's start with TCU. They won a different way. And the committee had talked about complete team and all of that. 
Well, that's a different way to win. And I think it puts them in really good stead and keeps them in the mix if they win the Big 12 championship and even if they were to stumble, say, uh, you know, against Baylor or something like that. Yeah, I, I thought it was to to go to Austin and just completely stone that Texas offense. I mean, that Texas offense, I think the first quarter combined was the the worst offensive quarter in FBS football this year. That's what they, they said, some note like that on the broadcast. So just completely antithetical to the Big 12, completely antithetical to two offensive coaches, you know, who've made their living calling, calling plays. Um you know, you have two two of the higher profile quarterbacks in the country with uh, with with Quinn Ewers, who who really seems to be struggling right now, and then Max Duggan. Um, nobody could nobody could move the ball. Nobody could figure it out. Nobody could pick up a first down. So you know, a lot of credit to uh, a lot of credit to TCU for sort of adapting and adjusting, figuring out a way to grind out a couple drives. And really, Joe Gillespie's defense, the the, the three three five stack, they did not have D Winters, a great linebacker. Um, for the first half because of a targeting penalty. Mm-hmm. And they just made play after play. And, and Texas couldn't do anything. Bijan Robinson, I think, only had 12 carries for 29 yards. And they just Texas just couldn't get anything going, which is which is stunning. Now I know they're 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 young on the offensive line. They have issues at right tackle. Um, but like Texas football should not just be swallowed whole on offense like that. And I want to say that the last two second halves of the prior two games, they didn't score a touchdown, mm-hmm. and obviously they didn't score an offensive touchdown there. So it's it's a five alarm fire for that offense right now. They're just simply not getting it done and not moving the ball, and there's there's myriad reasons for it. But it's just uh, it's it's been a bizarre disappearing act considering some of the flashes that they showed early in the year and. Bijan Robinson is one of the 10 best players in all of college football. And it's been a little bit of a mystery to me why they just haven't been able to, to get him going. But I, I don't, I, I don't want to dwell too much on Texas's struggles no, because yeah. TCU created them. Joe right. Gillespie, three, three, five stack. Um, you got a freshman nose guard. You've got ball Hawk defensive backs. They, they wreaked havoc and chaos. Sark as a play caller has struggled against that style of defense in the past and uh, boy, did those show up again on uh, on Saturday night. So, I mean, they basically took TCU took the committee's biggest criticism and answered it resoundingly on the biggest stage with game day there in sold out DKR in one of the more hostile environments TCU is going to play in in an intense rivalry. And they said, oh, we can't stop anybody. Looks like we can stop somebody. <laughs> So we've talked about this before, Pete. You you go watch a game from the sideline. Typically, you go to the visiting sideline as long as the mm-hmm. sun's not glaring right in your eyes on that side or something like that because it's less crowded over there. Mm-hmm. So I was on the TCU sideline Saturday night and was told a, a great story about Josh Newton, who you know played his tail off in the secondary for TCU, too. He transferred from Louisiana Monroe. And the difference in – the amenities and different things that are available to players sure. at the highest level. You know, it's, it's not no fault of Louisiana Monroe, but you know, Josh had talked to some of their people about that previously they had gone to restaurants sometimes like to look for extra foods. Hey, are you guys throwing out any food? There's a lot of football players doing this to make sure they got their calories, you know, bulk and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he came in and made it a, made it a point to thank all of the people at TCU you know, it was very moved by the fact that basically whatever he needs from a nutrition standpoint, food standpoint, uh, scholarship standpoint, all of the different things that had really not only 
changed the way he's able to pursue his goal of being the best football player he can be, but it's also helped his family at large. Uh, you know, he's from, from Monroe, Louisiana. So you hear stories like that and uh, you sort of get a picture of how some of the teams are put together sometimes and how you can find, and I don't mean this as a pun in any way, shape, form or fashion, but, but a hunger uh, to be great an appreciation, a, an opportunity to, play your best on the biggest stage because there is uh, an appreciation. There's a, I don't want I, I will say it. There is a desperation because of, of what you've been through to get to that point. And maybe there's a little bit of that in a lot of places uh, on the TCU team. Duggan gets a lot of attention because it's never easy when a veteran quarterback and a leader doesn't win the job under the new coaching staff. That is a recipe for malcontents, except Max Duggan was bigger than that and ends up getting the job back after Chandler Morris got hurt, which has been documented uh, a thousand times. But I thought it also showed a little something that flies under the radar about the appreciation from some other guys uh, on that team and maybe a little bit of insight into where that passion that TCU is playing with right now is, is coming from that, you know, that it's not all about five stars and hopping in the transfer portal and getting your best NIL deal. There are also some dudes out there who are getting after it because they feel like they recognize that they've got a tremendous opportunity in front of them and the passion with which they play on the field is reflecting that. I think that's a that's a really good point, Reese, because a lot there's a lot of demonization of the portal and NIL because it's you know it's not familiar to people and it's not the way they grew up with the sport. But boy, what opportunity it's yielded, guys! Um, you know, look like you hate to say it, but essentially, if you're at a high end Big Twelve school like uh, TCU compared to Louisiana Monroe, which is a low end Sun Belt school, that's almost like a different. It's just it's almost like a different level of sport. It's like going mm-hmm. from AAA to the big leagues within within college football. And I do think one of the one of the aspects that gets overlooked is that nutrition aspect. Um, for years, remember the old uh, NCAA wouldn't let you put cream cheese on a bagel. A bagel, yeah. The, the yeah. big the biggest criticism to me, the biggest crime to me that the NCAA, which is committed to plenty of them, did was like like limiting how you could feed athletes. Like, yeah. are you kidding me? You're making yep. these kids work 18 hours a day. You're running them around the country, and then you're not letting them put food in their bodies for energy. Like, and they're, they, so they're going to go to McDonald's and you know use their use their per diems and their stipend checks and whatever, and they're going to they're going to buy the cheapest food possible. And so I, I just really think like those you know we we spent a lot of time talking about the waterfalls and the leather the leather lockers and all that stuff like elite nutrition, especially in a program that's a developmental program. Mm-hmm. is such uh you know is such a f- foundational element and and I go in all these buildings like you do with these uh the, these football programs and like there's huge spreads breakfast lunch new fuel stations thank god for that development mm-hmm. like what a what an important step in just taking care of the the athletes that 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 is and look the the training table is different at TCU than it is at Monroe it is what mm-hmm. it is you know it's yeah. just basic it's just basic finances mm-hmm. um you know, it's like the the difference between going to uh, you know Mastros and Longhorn Steakhouse, right? Like yeah. it's just there's just a there's just a different a different level. And you, you know, for kids who want to go pro, you need to gain those 15 pounds of muscle. Plus, you got more strength coaches, more people to work with you personally. And the guys who don't have that early in their college career are going to you know have a have a strong appreciation of that. So I've really come to appreciate 
the opportunities of the portal more than the drawbacks of the portal. And that's a, that's a great story that, you know, that, that, that illustrates that the one other point about the TCU defense uh, before I kick it back to you, Reese, is that look, Gary Patterson was celebrated and put on TV a bunch. We talked about him on game day. We talked about Mm -hmm. him on the podcast. Let's just be really clear. Like TCU hit a rut under him and Sonny Dykes and Joe Gillespie, especially that defense mm-hmm. wasn't stopping anybody Gary's last couple of years. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that there has been a spirit. Uh, I, I talked to a couple of coaches who studied TCU going into the week and like, they just said they play so hard like that. That is just something that's very difficult to quantify, but that was what really jumped off the field is mm-hmm. that they are flying around and there is an edge and an energy there that, that wasn't there before. So a lot of credit to Sonny. You credit their strength staff. You credit Joe Gillespie. You credit the, the rest of the defensive staff. They they have that. You saw it with Quentin Johnston playing through uh, a high ankle. And you're really going out. I mean, he's one of the differences in the game. Um, mm-hmm. They don't have him. Boy, TCU's offense really, uh, really ends up struggling. So just, you know, all, you know, for as much attention as Gary got, I don't think enough people have said, hey, look, Sonny's done a lot of things that Gary didn't do the past couple of years. That doesn't take away from what Gary built there. It doesn't take away from his statue. But at the end of the day, I really feel like Sonny Dykes, and again, we've talked about the Sonny Dykes fade, et cetera. He has brought in um, a little, maybe a little bit of different formula, maybe a little different edge here. And he also has better players and, and, and better talent to work with. So just really impressive programmatically, I think, all the way around to keep that edge. I look, I agree with that a hundred percent. And you know, my affection and affinity for Gary, a couple things. I do want to point out uh, the story I told about Josh Newton. I don't mean that in any way, shape, form or fashion to cast any aspersion or bad light on Louisiana Monroe, who I'm, I'm sure does everything humanly possible and within their financial power to take care of their athletes. I'm sure of that because, you know, they have good players that have come out of there. You know, it's, I, I don't mean it. I was just highlighting the difference and showing the appreciation that one particular player has for sure. for the differences and how it's impacted him. And As they do everything pertain- they can, Reese. Everything like, they can, they, for sure. It's just yeah. their TV money is it's probably yeah. less. Like, they could probably make annually like less than you know TCU's coordinators combined. It's just a it, different. In that it wasn't like I was calling them bush league or anything. Like no, no, no. I didn't a mean different that. financial yeah. plane. It's yeah. just it's just simple. And yeah, you know they're they're they are you know, look Coach Bowden and everybody there. They they work really hard to to, mm-hmm. to to maximize what they have. But when you have limited resources, you have limited resources. Yeah, and I and I guarantee you that there are people there on that staff, whether it's Terry or any of his assistants, who probably do all kinds of things personally to try to help. Oh, sure. you know, and I don't mean anything untoward or illegal or anything like that. I'm talking about just basic, basic things like getting food or whatever. But I just wanted to make that clear because I know people get hypersensitive about their programs and, you know, think that I'm, you know, picking on them or some such thing. That's not the case at all. As it pertains to the coaching change, uh, I'm a big fan of Gary Patterson. I think he could be successful as a head coach again. Uh, as he as he was at TCU. But you're right to say it hasn't been the same the last few years there. And Lee Corso, who continues to recover, and I'm actually told as we record this this morning, sounds and feels much better. Um, awesome. So we're delighted to hear that. But Lee's had one of the great um, analogies or lines of all time about coaching changes. He always says, when you fire a short coach, you hire a tall coach. When you fire a fat coach, you hire a skinny coach, meaning that everybody wants something a little different. 
And I think it's beneficial sometimes for the players to have a different approach um, in certain situations. And TCU had uh, seemed to hit a hit a plateau, a bit of a wall, a lull, and it faded, uh, to use that term again, uh, under, under Gary the last few years. And then having a different outlook and perspective on the way a team is run, on the way a program is, is run, a way uh, an offensive approach, all those things can be sort of reinvigorating for players. You see this in business all the time. You see it in life. And it's sort of the human nature for people to respond to a different message sometimes. And I think TCU is exhibit A of that. They are responding to a different way of doing things that that Sonny has brought in. As you said, it doesn't change the fact that TCU uh, built something out of nothing under Gary Patterson, that they were undefeated Rose Bowl champs. If we'd had a 14 playoff in uh, 2010, they would have been in it. You know, it's, um, you know, they, it was, and maybe other years too, maybe should have been in this 14 playoff in 2014 uh, under him as well. And now a great opportunity to be in the 14 field in 2022. Does your gut tell you that even with the things that have happened around at TCU, if they were to be, and, and based on based on what we saw from uh, Baylor the other night, it's, it's not as if I'm sitting here picking Baylor to upset them, but we see crazy things every week. TCU as a one-loss champion of the Big 12 would still have, in my judgment, say better wins than, say, Clemson, if Clemson's a, a one-loss champion of the ACC, or North Carolina, if North Carolina were to be a one-loss champion in the ACC. It's going to get sticky, I know, with the whole LSU, Georgia, Tennessee conundrum, the Ohio State, Michigan thing. How would that play out? But I'm not of the opinion that it should be a situation where TCU absolutely has to be undefeated. This is not Cincinnati from last year. Now, their non-conference, I get it, not great. Uh, same as Michigan, non-conference, not, not great. I understand that. But I think they have enough quality wins on their resume. I'm not saying they have to make it. As a one-loss champion, I am saying I don't think it's disqualifying uh, if they, you know, if they were to stumble before the Big Twelve championship game and then still win the Big Twelve. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think this year, Reese and our listeners would know, like, is looking to maybe bend some paradigms, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, we 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 sort of were talked back into Oregon being a contender after a blowout, which was something maybe that that wouldn't have happened in in recent years. We have two loss LSU being a, a, a potential contender if they can go pull an upset in Atlanta um, and obviously take care of business against struggling Texas A&M. Um, and <laughs> like, like kindly. Uh, yes. Whew, very kindly. Um, and then, you know, like TCU right now, it would be a fascinating one loss conference champion TCU because there's supposed to be weight on conference champions when it's convenient. Right. Um, well, I wouldn't say when it's convenient, when it's similar, when, when a yeah. team's not unequivocally better. And to your point that that's probably this year, the only team I can look at and see right now that I would say unequivocally better is Georgia. Yeah. You know, I would, and may I'm, I'm almost there with Ohio state just to be candid yeah. about it, but mm-hmm. certainly Georgia, maybe Ohio state, the rest of them, I don't see unequivocally better. So then those things, those things should carry some weight. Head to head needs to yeah. carry some weight in conference sure. championships should. Yeah. No, and and I think if if T, say CCU stumbles at Baylor and then ends up beating Kansas State again in the uh in the Big 12 title game. Say there's a myriad scenarios, but let's say it shakes out that way. I think, you know, they've got a they've got a really good case. I it will be interesting the scheduling dynamic and how that's played in this race because 
TCU does not have this gangbusters on conference, but they did go on the road twice. And one of those was against the power five team. And I do think the intent to schedule, and you could, you could argue that both those games were better than Michigan's best out of conference game because they had Colorado state, they had Hawaii, and then I believe they had a Mac school. No, they had, um, you, they had the University of Connecticut. Your bowl eligible ghost busting. True, Connecticut yeah, that's Huskies. Best non conference win. Yes, fifty nine yeah. nothing. Um, they beat uh, they beat up on all UConn. So, um, I just think like boy, those are two distinctly better efforts. And did Jim Harbaugh not wanting to play UCLA? Is that going to become more of the conversation here as we go forward? Because if Michigan had played and handled UCLA. Um, or even quite frankly, handled them and lost to them and then won the conference title. Like, does that, it, it, it becomes interesting because these decisions end up shaping scheduling philosophies down the road, right? There's mm-hmm. the, what if Oregon played Portland State instead of going Atlanta to play Georgia? How would we view the Ducks differently now? And, and it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating question to just sort of hypothetical, uh, hypothetical out. Now, I am in favor of robust non-conference schedules. Like when I first started covering the sport, week one was boring. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It was like, Penn State plays Toledo and wins by four. You know, it was just a lot of that. And I give the schedulers credit. I give the TV networks credit for for being aggressive in sort of creating some of these these games that are really exciting early uh, early in the year. And I, yeah, I, I would hate to see embracing poor opponents reward. I don't think you're going to for a number of reasons. And I, I wish I could remember the person who reached out to me on Twitter so I can say this. It's a Duck fan who it shows you how everything that we say gets parsed. I have not been one of those on the what if Oregon had played Portland State bandwagon because I'm also not a big fan of intent and scheduling because you start going down that road, you add another uh, qualifier and maybe you don't consider every dimension of what led to a decision. But this Oregon fan keeps uh, has hit me and said, will you guys stop saying that about Portland State? We can't play Portland State. We couldn't play two of them. We already we already had Eastern Washington on the schedule. So they so they did play one. But the point uh, the person who sent that was sort of missing the point because you guys were just talking about not playing Georgia, you know, not playing the reigning national champion in their home state. You're talking about Mm -hmm. playing someone you could handle playing a. Uh, a Mountain West school, a lower tier Mountain West school or something of that nature. So the point is well taken. I'm not a big fan of delving into motivation in scheduling because there are other things, which I don't mean to put you on the spot. I don't think we've had this conversation before. Jim Harbaugh is not a guy who's going to duck anyone, I wouldn't think. Um you know, and and I, you know, I think I misspoke on the Dan Patrick show. My bigger point was that Michigan was going to be penalized for its non-conference. And I think I inverted it and said UCLA went out. I, I don't care who went out. They didn't play, but it was apparently Michigan's decision. What was the, what yes. was the motivation behind, behind that decision? Do you know that? So they, they paid UCLA 1.5 million to get out of the games. But why? Um, when, and when, and they, when, you know, my understanding from talking to people at UCLA, this was a couple years ago now. So it's okay. not like they yeah. did this going into the season. Um, yeah. I, and I did Google and look up earlier in the year just to, you know, to as this started to percolate a little bit. Um, but it was it was it was a pure Michigan play. Because remember, UCLA kind of got stuck with uh, a similarly um, lightweight non-conference schedule um, 
because of because of Michigan's decision. But it was communicated to me that Harbaugh basically didn't want to challenge themselves in the in the non conference. That was that it was that 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 he was the and this was from the UCLA side, but that he was the the instigator of this uh, of of this decision. So October twenty fifth. Uh, 2019, Michigan has terminated its home and home series, uh, and they replaced it with Hawaii and East Carolina in uh, in those two games. Uh, that the release from the Michigan side in 2019 was that they did it to balance out the home schedule and guarantee seven games in Ann Arbor for each mm-hmm. season. Which look, they they must make um, a million plus bucks. They did pay East Carolina. 1.8 million for uh mm-hmm. for that for that home game so um look jim, jim harbaugh is yeah. you know, one of the most competitive that, humans that we've seen yeah. go through modern football um and again in 2019 when they're doing this remember reese like oh, not very good Har- harbaugh's yeah. in a bit of a spiral i mean yeah I- i've maintained that if the immortal valentino ambrosio makes a field goal when they play rutgers in the COVID mm-hmm. year we may not have the Jim Harbaugh anymore because I believe they went two and four in the COVID year. They did. And, yeah. you know, they could have, you know, <laughs> Rutgers could have well won that game multiple times. Um, and again, Michigan, I do credit them for this is not a knee jerk place. Like it's just not a place that operates, operates in that fashion, but you know, it'd be, it'd be naive to think you make that decision in the middle of 2019 and there aren't competitive reasons for it. Mm-hmm. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's not financially motivated to give right. away 1.5 million to, to UCLA for nothing, just hand them a check. And then to, to get another home game and pay East Carolina, you know, close to uh, close to 2 million bucks. And they obviously had to pay Hawaii somewhere in a, in a pretty big range too. So look, you look I, and again, do I, do I judge Jim Harbaugh for doing that at a time when his tenure was, was, you know, it wasn't flatlined but by any means, but was, was he was struggling to, uh, to live up to Lloyd Carr's standards, if you will. And, mm-hmm. uh, to his credit and to my surprise, quite frankly, um, you know, they, they have been one of the best and most consistent teams in college football the last two years. They have a clear identity mm-hmm. and uh, they are, they're as solid as the day is long. Yeah. One, one thing, and I, I do want to talk about, about that too, but one thing, the reason I'm against putting too much emphasis, if any, in that committee room on intent and scheduling is because in my judgment, Michigan is going to be punished sufficiently by who they actually ended up playing you know now as it, the trickle down thing i understand that it wasn't ucla's fault but that's what if if michigan loses by a field goal in a great game in columbus that will be the non-conference schedule without the opportunity to play ucla will be the thing that will almost certainly keep them out of the playoff with one loss Flip it, and I think that Ohio State still has a chance. Now, I know Kirk disagrees with me on this, I think, because of the home field advantage, and and that's a fair point, and it may well prove to carry the day. But to me, Ohio State is, you know, would have the one late loss to, you know, to what would then be an undefeated Michigan team. They'd have a win over Notre Dame, which as as things keep going, it it looks better and better, and they they certainly – uh, past the football judgment test. So, but I think, the, and so there's nothing really to stick Ohio State with other than saying, well, they lost the game at home, which in this year, I mean, man, oh man, try to find the great road wins. There aren't that many of them. Mm-hmm. Washington had one the other night, but mm-hmm. there aren't that many of them. Michigan would have that. But if Michigan were to lose, 
then I think that that non-conference albatross would be enough to keep them out. And that would probably be punishment enough. And it would probably be appropriate uh, to be candid about it. So, uh, you know, that's I think that that's all really you know, it's interesting stuff. And, and if we get to that, who knows? I mean, you know, maybe that's going to be a hell of a game in Columbus. Oh, I mean, just, you know, I've been lucky to cover a bunch of those games over the years. And uh, ooh, I just started kind of digging in on coaches who played one or both of them uh, started last night, got a couple more uh, this week to go on. And, uh, you know, there is you know, people, people think Ohio State has more talent. I don't think that's any new, great newsflash, right? Mm-hmm. When you look at, you know, just some of the – but the, the way Michigan is playing defensively as a unit, their scheme, um, you know, to talk to an offensive coach who, uh, who who played them last night, and they they gushed about what Michigan does on third down. Um, you know, the, the chess match with Ryan Day and Jesse Minter that's going to be on that side of the ball, uh, the O-line, D-lines, both sides, like that. Just Again, we're going to talk about a bunch, but I'm like, I'm officially fired up for that game. Yeah, and, and both of them have tests of different degrees coming up this weekend. Yep. We, we've seen in the past great um, Ohio State team went into Maryland, almost messed around and lost, had to survive a two-point conversion. Uh, this Maryland team seems to have lost its way a little bit, so I don't really – I don't see that type of danger for Ohio State. And Illinois looked like a significant challenge to Michigan coming in, but the last couple of weeks, uh, the Illini have sort of – I guess maybe uh, the whole thing, maybe the the beating Nebraska curse is alive and well or something still because so many teams – it's weird, man. You you guys can go on Twitter and find it. Uh, the teams – everybody – basically – Reader's Digest condensed version. After you finish beating Nebraska, they don't get their revenge against you then. They just get the revenge against you the rest of the season, or at least the next few weeks. You beat Nebraska, you start losing. I mean, it's really, really, really a bizarre thing. It calls to mind what they used to say, what what they say about Alabama, LSU, and recent vintage. And before that, Mm -hmm. when Tuberville had it rolling at Auburn, uh, the Auburn-LSU games back in the early 2000s, and that will, you heard about the military would, academies sometimes, right. like the, the next week after Navy or yeah. the next week after uh, right. yeah. Army, like you're just beat up and you yeah. know, just can't yeah. do it. Tuberville told me once that when he was at, at Auburn that it took them a week to get over LSU. He said we were vulnerable uh, the, the next week, just mentally, physically and everything after that type of physical game. And certainly in recent years, that's been Alabama. And, and LSU. And I think, you know, that I don't know. I don't think it's the same thing playing Nebraska, but it's turning, it's turning into the same effect. And, you know, certainly for Michigan, Michigan will have a really physical challenge, if nothing else, with, uh, with Illinois coming in. Weekend Review is brought to you by Eckridge Smoked Sausage. Find them in the refrigerated meat aisle at your favorite grocery store to create one-of-a-kind sausage recipes. Eckridge, you do you. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, about the Oregon-Washington game. That was a great win. Great for it was best great, games of the year. It was, it was tremendous. Wire to wire. Yeah, I wasn't able to watch it in its entirety yet because I was at the TCU-Texas game. But I, I saw a good portion of it in the bus at one point and then also got back to the hotel in time to see in time to see the end. And you were also gracious in keeping me up to date while I was in transit uh, from the, from the stadium to the hotel. But 
that that was a great win. It was one of those things where the one thing you worried about uh, was you know some of the pass defense, third down, all of that stuff from Oregon's defense, and it really it really came home to roost with Penix leading the nation in passing going into that game, making big plays, and then the sort of um, you know bizarre ending and that came about with Oregon trying to save itself right at the end of the game, and with that, it's thrown the whole Pac-12 race into flux. Mm-hmm. It's 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 eliminated Oregon from college football playoff uh, contention in my judgment. Even if they were uh, to you know to play in the Big Twelve championship game and win it, uh, but the other thing it's done is that it's put another team without a really notable win on its resume up to this point in best position out of the Pac twelve, and that's USC. Um, you know, USC got all of this attention for Lincoln Riley coming in and Caleb Williams and Jordan Addison and all the transfers that they've had. And the Trojans have have done their part. They only lost on the late two-point conversion against Utah. But the problem with USC is there's not really a notable win. I mean, they I, I get what's their best win, I guess, at Oregon State, who I think is a good team. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a good, solid team, and it's a road win. So that should count. But we're going to find out about the Trojans against a disappointed, wounded UCLA team and then against Notre Dame, which is tough, good, but limited. And yes. and that's, you know, SC's in, SC's in decent shape here coming coming down the stretch. They are in decent shape. So I called around a little bit about Oregon last week, um, caught some USC shrapnel. That's just from talking to different uh, different coordinators out west because you know there's obviously some overlap in, in how they play and boy were people underwhelmed by USC's defense like that that there was there was just not a lot of like structurally unsound was one word that that came to mind by by one of the coaches it was just not there was not like a now look Caleb Williams is unbelievable and nobody nobody is certain denying what their what their skill level is there but can. They now they play three consecutive quality opponents, right? UCLA is a sound quality opponent, even though they lost Arizona the other night. And then obviously Notre Dame, look, Drew Pine is not going to go possession for possession. Um, you know, Larry Bird, Dominique Wilkins with Caleb Williams, right? That's not going to happen. But there is a there is at least a, a roadmap for Notre Dame to play Smash Mouth, um, which USC may struggle with some. And, uh, and and give them fits and, and and give them a test a little bit and uh, so those are interesting tests and then the Pac-12 title game um, which I would think the odds on favor is they play Oregon correct which who they haven't played this oh, year well but well, it Oregon could be Washington or yeah. well no it could be Utah remember Utah's only got one conference loss and they hold head to head on USC Utah's yes. got Oregon this week so okay. I oh, mean you yeah, yeah so I think you're looking at. Uh, I should have I should have these scenarios broken down already, but basically I don't think it's too terribly uh, too terribly complicated right now. You know, certainly if you I think I think that Oregon game gave USC a clear path in, and Oregon is either going to get its second conference loss or Utah is going to get its second conference loss. So I would say the winner of that game is in really good shape. Of course, then you have to factor in that UCLA has the tiebreaker head to head over Utah, but not Oregon, you know, so <laughs> there, there are some combination combinations and permutations that will be at play based on the results of, of the game this weekend. And Games then weekend. Washington is five and two, but they still theoretically have a shot 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it. it they're you not know, one or two losses. You're still in it, right? Yes, in, in the pack, exactly. Yeah. So Oregon State down, and Oregon State's had a heck of a year. They're seven and three, four and three in the league. But yes, it's uh, look the Pac-12. Give them a lot of credit. Like it, that league has elevated itself this year. It has been a fun league. It has been. It, it is kind of filled with stars again. And look, Penix and Bonex were imported stars. But that's what happens when you go hire good coaches. Is good talent follows them. I mean, really, Caleb Williams too, right? So mm-hmm. the you know the the three defining players in the Pac-12 this year are uh, are, are all guys who who played elsewhere last year. So uh, yeah, I, uh, I I it has been a lot more enjoyable to watch West Coast football. I think they have six ranked teams right now. Um, I saw on, uh, on on Sunday and. Again, we root for a vibrant, healthy college football from coast to coast, and so it's nice to see the Pac-12 in the play in the thick of the playoff conversation. Not are they out on September 10th, like we've been talking about um, in in previous years. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, that'll be that will be a fun conclusion, and let's hope that there's some that there's some CFP stakes in however the Pac-12 race does shake out. I think there's a pretty good chance of that. Um, yeah. If you had to, if you had to bet a nickel, to use our buddy Gene Wojciechowski's idea for peace, if you had to bet a nickel or a week's paycheck, whichever one you let's let's say a week's paycheck, but like put a put a little stake in the game. Who is the Pac-12 champion on Selection Day, and are they being considered for the playoff spot? I think it's Utah, and no. If I had to, if I had to bet a nickel, that's that's where I would go to. I mean now. Look, man, they've got to win, and they've got to win, and outs and and outs and after Oregon just lost, you know, a rivalry game. So yeah. uh, they're running into a buzzsaw there. But I'm gonna, I, I that's what I go with too. I think Utah will will get there, and uh, I think they'll win the game, and they'll be just on the outside, and they'll go back to the Rose Bowl. That's uh, that's my. That's my guess, my best prediction. So where does SC lose? Do they lose to UCLA or do they lose and not make it? Or do they lose to Utah again in the Pac-12 championship game? I think they lose to Utah again, which would make for a heck of a Pac-12 championship game yeah, with some high stakes. Oh, the, the regular season one was, was awesome. What I mean, the, the it was a yeah, great the 10 best games of the year. Yeah. Great game. Just a, it's, I'll, I'll sign up to see that again. And, yeah. and if I I'm listened wrong, to that game, I don't know if you remember this, Reese. I listened to that game driving home to, to Boston yeah. after yeah. we left Knoxville. And I toggled between the SC broadcast and the uh, Utah broadcast. It was just a fun night. Like, I love listening to games on radio. I know that makes me like old and antiquated, but I just like the. You know, you listen to the Nebraska game on Sirius and like you see that hear the farm commercials and then you listen to the, you know, that it's just like that's it was it was one of the cool, uh, you know, it was such a good game and stakes were so high and, uh, you know, obviously came down to last play. So anyway, that was one of my sort of favorite consumption of the game moments of the year. No, I know. I, I like listening to the games on the radio, too. And I think we talked about this, the ESPNU channel on Sirius. Yeah, not Channel 84. Yeah. Yeah, Channel That's, 84. Not to give them a plug until they start, until they reignite my free subscription. So I'm, <laughs> I keep making these appearances for them and my radios are dead. So they've got to they've got to get on that like right now. Mike, I pay for mine. I pay for mine. No, so, you should start uh, making some appearances. That's like I mean, it's the, they get off cheaply because I mean, a little baseline subscription for making a, making a weekly appearance on there. That's that's pennies on the dollar for them. Pete with you, you're the authority Go in there and 
go in there and get, get that stuff going. But. My pet peeve is you can't listen to that on a plane. So sometimes the internet yeah. on a plane isn't yeah. good enough to, to get a YouTube TV feed or whatever, mm-hmm. but you can listen to the radio. So I, that's like a great way. If you're in the air for an hour, just like they hop through games, they're like, oh, third and goal at Tennessee. We'll go down to the call on really the radio yeah. network. And then it's like, oh, San Diego State's lined up for a game-winning field goal. Let's go out to, you know, the mountain. You know. So I, I enjoy just sort of following that way. And it gives you, because the radio guys know so much and do so much prep. They really give mm-hmm. you like a, an extra level of... Uh, you know, the extra level of detail and color and, and, and such. So, but when you're, once you, once you hit uh, 10,000 feet, ain't, ain't no serious up there. No, it, it, the streaming has gotten better. If you get on the, on the planes, uh, particularly Delta and American, some of the service, now some, some of it's still awful, but there are some of the higher speed ones. Now the $5 one, the one that says $5 streaming, that one's, fast and you can even get some video sometimes an American has a, a pretty good one where you go on your device and go on Wi-Fi and entertainment and they have several channels available yeah. to you uh, to be able to just watch through their service and you can actually see some see some games so yeah it's not bad it's not bad people wonder what we talk about on Saturdays this I is know, it's not, yeah, it's not, <laughs> well they like well, I'm told that in these podcasts that they like some of the behind the scenes stuff sure so so that's what we do. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. I, I told you a great day for me after the show is to be able to go on the college game day oh, bus, yeah. five monitors, sit there, watch, pop up, uh, pop up different games, keep up with everything. Well, Saturday wasn't bad either. The bus had to get on its way to Bozeman. You know, that's a long drive. So Matt, our sensational bus driver, um, had to take off. So instead I, I went back to the hotel, had screen three devices up. And so you sort of had the same thing too. That's a good day too. And then you, and then you hop in the car and go to the game and realize that, uh, uh, that this is a spoiled, wonderful existence that we have to be able to, to go in and keep up with all these games and watch and you come back and watch the end and stay there and watch Jaden Delora weave his magic against, uh, against Chip Kelly and great win for Jed fish, by the way, mm-hmm. who's done a really, sure. really good job. They're fun to watch on offense at least. And oh yeah. Put sure. a, crimping chips plans this year. So mm-hmm. plenty, plenty of upsets, a lot of fun, a lot of yeah. fun to be able to do that. What are you looking forward to in Bozeman race? And and this is an open call for, I've actually been to Bozeman uh, before, but open call for any suggestions, any like background history in the rivalry, hit, hit me up on social media, shoot an email, whatever it is. I'm fired up. It's just going to be so different. And uh, the scene there is going to be surreal from, from all accounts. Uh, what are you fired up about? I'm, I love, you know, I love to go new places with the big scenes and because they have been lobbying so hard to get us to this rivalry game over the last few years. And we did a great essay on it that we're going to update and run. I think at least the early part of the plans to familiarize people with why this is important. Both of these programs have been really good at the FCS level, obviously. So I'm looking forward to the scene. I'm looking forward to seeing how we respond to the elements because that's going to be much like a game. That's going to be part of the story and it's going to be part of the fun. Uh, I'm no big fan of cold weather, but for whatever reason, I'm looking forward to the show in those elements in that morning, because I think they're really going to be proud to show things off. And, um, and I've already had a couple of people reach out to me from uh, that area, from the big sky, from, uh, from Montana state, and, you know, invite me to join them and I'm going to go soak it up. You know, you know how, how I am. I, I tend to 
on especially on Fridays, kind of get in the silo because you want to do the best job you possibly sure. can on the show yeah. and be completely prepared. Spend a lot of time in my hotel room on the road. But I feel like I'll be doing myself and the show and the whole event a disservice if I approach it totally that way. Still going to be the same level of preparation, all that kind of thing. You can't let that slide. That's job number one. But I also feel like I, I owe it to myself and the show and the experience and the whole thing to go out and soak this up. So I'm, I'm open to those recommendations too. I can't wait to get out there, uh, and, and have a look at it and see what kind of reception they give us and to tell some stories. And you know, we're obviously going to cover the day, but it's an odd day in terms of schedule for, you know, the rest of the games. There aren't blockbusters out there necessarily. So it's a good day to to do that, to talk about games, look for upsets, do some big picture discussions and still celebrate uh, all levels of the sport. And one of the, one of the great rivalries, it's often, uh, often not on the edge of the consciousness of the average college football fan. Yeah. Well, the good news for us is that we will have plenty of prep time on the flight because it's not a short flight. (laughs) It is not (laughs) that, no, no complaints though. But yeah, let's uh, let's get a bison ribeye on uh, on Saturday night. Uh, let's have the good people tell us the best place to go uh, to go grab some sort of local hunk of meat. Uh, I'm in, totally in yeah. on that. Yeah. Big uh, that. And by the way, uh, the the bison uh, is is a fine cut of meat too. I've never had bison. It you know, well, that's what we're gonna do when we get yeah. out there. Then you know, we'll have to. Have to make make sure that we do that before. Yeah. Send us the best bison ribeye place in uh, in in Bozeman. We're trusting you, uh, trusted listeners. What what's the coldest game you can recall being at? So I have a very clear answer to this. Uh, December seventh, two thousand three, Colgate twenty eight, Western Illinois twenty seven, in a blizzard. In Hamilton, New York, uh, Marissa Dowling, our ace researcher, will will appreciate this story. Uh, Colgate stuns Western Illinois, who had, they had no business beating in front of a robust five thousand two hundred eighty seven. It snowed eight inches from kickoff to end game, eight inches over a four hour period, which is like just it just a football game played in a flat blizzard and all Western Illinois speed was negated. Colgate somehow gut, gutted out a win. The students, many of whom were bare chested for the game, which was impressive, rolled out probably with a little liquid courage, grabbed the goalposts, and then they haul them up the street at Colgate. And I don't know if you've ever been to uh, beautiful Hamilton, New York, but there's a big pond right on the cusp of campus. And after I filed my story, we drove. I drove back to Syracuse where, where I'd flown out of and the goalposts are bobbing up and down in the lake. <laughs> I mean, it snowed. Like, and again, I went to Syracuse and I live in Boston, so I'm not exactly a prude when it comes to snow. I was like white knuckle the whole way back. It was a flat blizzard. So I guess temperature probably didn't matter as much. I did go to like the coldest NFL playoff game ever, Patriots-Tennessee. Uh, um, I covered it as a stringer for the New York Times. It was it was like epically frigid. And I don't know if it still is the coldest one, but that was, those are, those are two of them, but yes, uh, you don't, you don't learn a lot about math at Syracuse, but they teach you to layer up. So I will be layered <laughs> up. I will look like a little <laughs> snowman. Uh, the only worry is if I'm going to split my pants because I have too many long jones on. Uh, you might, you, you might have a run for your money for the coldest one coming up on Saturday with Montana. Let's go. 
and Montana State. Can't wait to get there. Going to be fun. We'll be back on Wednesday with the podcast. Look ahead to some of the games this week. Also, perhaps talk some big picture issues um, with uh, with Heisman Trophy. More on the playoff and reaction to the college football playoff rankings, which will come out again on Tuesday night. Uh, once again, just want to reiterate our hearts, our thoughts, prayers, and condolences going out to everyone associated with the tragedy at the University of Virginia. Um, our deepest sympathies to all of those involved. Thank you for listening. We encourage you to download this wherever you like to get your podcast.